The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. One of the great joys of Christmas season is getting to watch it unfold before us. And we call this time the Advent. And so this is our first Advent candle uh, we're lighting today. If you've never uh, experienced the Advent season, maybe this is something new for you, then you'll get to see this happen over the next few weeks. Each week we'll light a different candle and have a different reading from the Scripture that prepares us to celebrate Christmas. It prepares us for the coming of Jesus in the manger. So today we had the, the prophet candle. So since we started today with the prophet candle, we're going to talk about the hope that the prophets preached. And so I hope you have your Bible, and I pray you'll join me now in the book of Jeremiah. Let's go back into the Old Testament today to Jeremiah chapter 31. And over these next few weeks, as we walk toward Christmas, we're going to be taking a different look each week at Christmas. Looking at Christmas maybe from a different angle or a different perspective. And today, we're going to go back into the past. Today, we're going back to the Old Testament, to the prophets. Because as uh, we just heard read a moment ago, Isaiah told us about Jesus coming but long before he ever came. Jeremiah, the same. Ezekiel. All these Old Testament prophets were there to prepare the world and prepare, in particular, God's people for the coming of the Messiah, for the Chosen One. We call Him the Christ. And so today I hope you're excited as we go back to the Old Testament to a dark and gloomy, really, story. It is a grim past that we're going to start in, but I think what you'll notice is even in the darkest of circumstances, there's always hope. There's always a light that is there shining in the darkness for us. If we'll look to the Lord, the light of truth will always open the way for us to find what we need to live life the way God intended us to. So we're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 31 today. We'll just look at verses 1 through 22. Matter of fact, we're not going to look at all of it. We're going to condense it down a little bit. But it's a large passage, so we won't have time to do all of it. But let me just open this with prayer. Fathers, we turn now to your word. We pray that truly this light would shine before us in your word, that we would see the truth as it is revealed in the scripture, that we would see that even in the old prophets, hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ came, you are already preparing your people. You are already telling the world, I'm sending hope. I'm sending the light. I'm sending a Messiah, a Christ who will save you from your sins. So, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to rejoice in that this season to be excited about Jesus' birth, and we would share that message of hope with the entire world. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things and pray. Amen. Now, as a child, I always enjoyed 
Christmas for a number of reasons. You probably uh, had a number of reasons why you liked Christmas too, maybe when you were growing up. I'm sure you could probably guess a few of the things that I loved about Christmas as a kid because you probably enjoyed some of the same things. I loved frosted window panes, candles gleaming inside, painted candy canes on the tree. Y'all know that song? Y'all with me? All right. I love the music, man. I like the, the songs. I like all those things the songs talk about. I love the presents that were under the tree, especially as a kid. I loved the boxes full of cookies that would show up from Painted, Illinois, from my grandmother. I loved the promise of opening gifts on Christmas Day. I'd beg and plead my mom and daddy if I could just do one before we got there, and they'd always say, no. You know, and, and so we had to wait, but it was, I was glad we did. But these were just a few of the things that I enjoyed as a child. But I also loved the stories. I love the Christmas story itself, but not just the whole story, the individual stories inside of the story. You know, I, I liked hearing about Mary, the mother of Jesus. I liked hearing about Joseph, his earthly father. I liked hearing about the wise men, and I liked hearing about the shepherds and the angels, and even uh, some of these uh, other characters you know, on the side, like Herod. You know, there were some different, really interesting caveats and angles to the story that really made it interesting. But I'm going to tell you one of the darkest parts of the Christmas story that as a child bothered me. There was one part that really, it kind of got to me, and it would really, when I would read this, it's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, you read the story of how Herod murdered babies. He murdered baby after baby in the city, in a little town called Bethlehem. And when I remember when I read that as a kid and I heard that part of the story, that was, that was just grim to me. I, it was gloomy. It was sad. I, I didn't understand. I said, God, why would you let this be in the Christmas story? I mean, this is the greatest story ever told. And, and leading us toward Easter, which is going to be the, the part two, you know. And God, why would this be in there? But you know what God began to show me? And I guess as I've aged and matured, I've come to realize that He puts all those details in there to help us. Even the, the difficult stuff, even the dark stuff, and the tough stuff is there to help us. And you say, how is that possible? Well, today I really want us to look at a passage of Scripture in Jeremiah 31 that's really a lot like that part of the Christmas story. Jeremiah is in a tough situation in Israel. Now, Jeremiah was preaching about 627 B.C. Now, think on that. 600 and some odd years before Jesus came in the manger, Jeremiah was already preaching about him. And we're going to see that today in the text we read. But I know that God puts these things in the Bible for us. This, those hard parts of the story, like the, those babies being murdered as Herod was trying to kill baby Jesus as he was trying to kill someone he saw as a competitor to his throne. I know God puts those things in there because he wants us to understand that we have a real enemy, and his name is the devil, Satan. And he is seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to destroy our lives. And the reason is simple, because if you and I claim that we belong to Jesus, if we claim faith in Christ, we can know for sure that Satan is working hard against us. matter of fact, in John chapter 15... Verses 18 and 19, Jesus told us this very thing. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the fact is, if you and I 
love baby Jesus, <laughs> the baby in the manger. If we love Jesus, the carpenter, if we love Jesus, the one who came and ministered and, and, and dealt with people, if we love Jesus, who went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin, if we love Jesus, who went into the tomb with our sins, if we love Jesus, the victor who came out of the tomb and who's coming again, Satan doesn't like us. He hates us. He hates us. And so we don't need to be shocked when bad things go on around us. We don't need to be caught off guard when we go through hard times and difficult situations. And I know that's why we have these passages in the Scriptures, to help us, to show us even in the darkest moments of life, even in those times when Satan's working so hard to destroy everything around us or even us, there's always hope. There's always hope. Because we have a Savior named Jesus who has defeated death. And he's disarmed the devil at the cross. And so a light is always shining. Here's one thing you'll learn in the Scriptures. You'll see it over and over again, and we're going to see it in Jeremiah 31. The light always shines the brightest in the darkest of hours. The light always shines the brightest in the darkest of hours. The darkness is allowed for a season because it sets the stage for the light of truth to come into our life. When did the vision of the future come to Abraham about his descendants? When he was shrouded in a deep darkness of a vision. You read that in Genesis chapter 15. When did God come to Moses in a bright burning bush? When he had been for 40 years on the backside of nowhere without his family and his friends separated from them while they were enslaved in Egypt. A dark time in his life. When did the word of the Lord come about the impending incarnation to Joseph, the carpenter, in Nazareth when he was asleep in the dark of his house in a deep dream? When did the angel of the Lord bring the message of Christ's birth to the shepherds? In the darkest of nights on a hillside outside of Bethlehem when they were all alone there in the cold. When did Saul hear the good news, the voice of Christ, as he was traveling on the road to Damascus? when he was on his knees, blinded and in the darkness of his own life? When did Nicodemus hear, you must be born again, when he came to Jesus by night? Over and over and over in the Scriptures, we find that the light shines the brightest when we're surrounded by the darkness. So here's the good news. We don't need to be afraid of the dark. <laughs> you don't need to be afraid. When I was a kid, sometimes I get a little afraid of the dark. But y'all, if we have Jesus, the light of the world, we don't need to be afraid of the dark. We don't have to worry about it because Christ is with us. So today, it's no different in our world than it was in the world of the folks that Jeremiah was preaching to. Let, join me right here in Jeremiah 31, and let's just look at this. In the first 14 verses, and I'm not going to read all this. I'm just going to tell you real quick what hit the high points of what it says. In the first 14 verses, Jeremiah lists a long, lengthy string of problems that he saw. These were problems of the fading hope that they were struggling with there in Israel. Hope was fading, hope of a future, hope of, their, of having a, a stable life because there was an enemy that was on the horizon. When Jeremiah is preaching, it's in the time right after Josiah, one of the great kings of Israel, has been killed. He was killed in a battle at Megiddo against the Egyptians. And as the people are reeling as a nation because their king is gone, the king they loved, Another king is put in place. He was a puppet. The Egyptians put him in place. His name was Jehoiakim. 
And when he comes to power, uh, he is not a good king. He's a wicked king. He begins to, to punish the people and tax them heavily. You read about this in, in Chronicles, all about his exploits. We read about how he led the people back toward the worship of pagan idols. And so it was a dark time in, in Israel when, Jer- when Jeremiah is trying to help people and encourage people and give them hope. They're in a really difficult season. And so he kind of outlines this. If you look in verse 2, he talks about how that they had experienced the death of their loved ones. That the people who had survived the sword were where God was going to grace them, even even in their in the wilderness of their life. In verse four, he talks about how there had been destruction of the life that they'd known in the land. In verses five and six, there had been devastation of their crops and their livelihood. In verse eight, he mentions how their families had been deported into slavery, that there were other conquering lands coming. As a matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians were invading during the preaching of Jeremiah. They invaded and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And so over and over, Jeremiah has to deal with these types of issues. They were, as a nation, a desolate people spiritually. They couldn't worship because the temple was now gone after the Babylonians conquered and destroyed. And so they were in the worst possible place they'd ever been in their life. And many of them were hauled off into captivity. Slaves, again. Just like their forebears had been in Egypt, now many of them became slaves in a place called Babylon, in a foreign land. And Jeremiah is having to help people who were dealing with that kind of darkness, with that kind of heaviness in their homes and in their hearts. And so you can imagine the the, the struggle that he had in trying to be a positive voice among the people. But here's the good news. Even in the midst of all that, Jeremiah still had hope. He still had a reason to hope because he knew who God was. He knew that God was with them, even in the hardest of moments. And there may be somebody here today who feels like that. You say, Brother Matt, I feel like my life's been decimated. Man, I feel like I've been through the ringer this month, this month, the last six months, the last year of my life. I just feel like I've been in the midst of total chaos in my world, and I feel like I'm just empty, like I'm bankrupt. Listen, there's hope. Even if your life is shrouded in darkness right now, I want you to know there's a flicker of light that is before you today. His name is Jesus, and He can give you hope for a bright future. Even if your hope seems to be fading away, I want you to notice there is the prospect of future hope. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah is hearing what the Lord is telling him, and he's simply repeating it. And these words were words reflecting what was going on in their nation. As I said, the Babylonians had swept in, and they had murdered a lot of people, killed a lot of people. They hauled the rest off into captivity. And Jeremiah finishes verse 15 with those words, because they are no more. And when he said that, you could just feel the air going out of the people. You could feel uh, everything just sinking down in that moment. There's no hope for the future. It's fading away. But there's good news on the horizon. Matter of fact, Matthew will quote this verse in Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Because, see, Jeremiah didn't know this. Jeremiah didn't realize that even though he was saying this about his nation, that some 600 years later, 
this very same thing would happen again in a little village near Ramah called Bethlehem. And there in that village, Herod would have babies murdered, executed. There'd be no more. Why? Because he had heard from the wise men that there was a competitor for his throne. There was a king that had been born, someone who could rule the nation, who would lead the people, who would give them hope, who would be a light in a dark place. And Herod said, I'm not going to deal with that. I'm going to take care of him. And so he had that happen. So in the same way, in Jeremiah's day, in the day of Herod, or in our day, listen, there's times when you just feel like the air is gone out of your sails. Like your life is down to nothing and there's no hope. It has faded away. But let me tell you, there's always hope when we have the light of Christ. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. I love the way Paul puts it. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. Look at that. We, we, don't, just, we don't have somebody who just kind of wants the light to show up. God can tell the light to show up. He commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Listen, even when my life is dark and I can't do anything about it, there's a God who can command light to shine into my life. Well, that's a blessing. That's, that's hope, y'all. That's what's wonderful to know. We got a God we can trust. We got a God we can turn to. And that's where they were in Jeremiah's day. They needed that. They needed that hope. So look at this in verses 16 and 17. The Lord continues, and He gives them the prospect for a future hope. There, there's a prospect for a future hope. There's something they can count on here. They can look to. When Jeremiah put, put volume to on his lips the words of God in his heart, he was speaking about the desolation and death that was coming about because of the destruction of the nation, because the people were being deported. But he was speaking simply about the loss of their generation. But little did he know, as I said before, he was actually telling us about what would come in the days of Christ when he came, and then also the hope that would come with him. So look at verse 16. He says, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. He's got the best words they've heard in years. Jeremiah says, listen, don't give up. I'm telling you right now, though they are no more right now, he says there's coming a day in the near future when God is going to bring back our people. He's going to restore us to the land that God gave us. He's going to make our feet firm in the place where he's placed us. And so Jeremiah is really telling them about the offer, the prospect of the future hope that was coming in the form of a return to the land, a restoration of the people. And with the wise men, when uh, Matthew writes about this, what, what is happening, Matthew is letting us know that even the wise men could see the glimpse and the glimmer of hope on the horizon. They could see the light that was shining. As a matter of fact, God gave them the best gift of all. Sometimes we think, well, the wise men were so good and wise because they brought the baby gifts. Let me tell you something, they got the best gift. The wise men got the best gift because they got to catch a glimpse of the king of kings before he exited for Egypt for a time until Herod passed away, until he died off the scene. So God's got a plan. That's what we're saying here. In Jeremiah's day, God had a plan for to give them a hope and a future. In your life, God's got a plan. 
But you've got to trust Him and you've got to wait for it in that moment. He's got the desire to rescue you from destruction and to put His hope in you. But you've got to look to Him. I love what Jeremiah will write later. Look at this in Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 22 through 24, uh, he'll write this later on in one of his famous messages. Jeremiah will say, though, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I what? Therefore I what? I hope in him. Now look at this. He says, I'm hoping in him. Think on that. That doesn't mean wishful thinking. Hope here does not mean wishful thinking. Sometimes we do that, right? Boy, I hope the weather's good tomorrow. Well, that's just wishful thinking. That's not what he means right here. He says, I hope in him. What does he mean? I have confidence in him. I have assurance in him. I'm trusting in him. God will do what he says he'll do. And he will be compassionate to me. And that's what Jeremiah is letting them know. We've got to have that perspective. There's a prospect of future hope. We need to trust in God. So look at verse 18. Because then he talks then about a process for finding hope. In verses 18 and 19, he really helps us. Because he gives us a process that you and I really need to take to heart every day in our life. When we're in those dark days where we're struggling and we're having a hard time. I have them. You have them. We do. And we have those seasons of life where it looks like everything's getting dark around us. In verses 18 and 19, it's amazing. He gives us a simple process to take that will help us really find that hope we need in the moment. So look at this, verse 18. I have surely, and this is God speaking now through Jeremiah about Israel. And he, he's going to call Israel here with the name Ephraim. Don't, don't get confused right here. Look at verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Ephraim sometime was a name that was interchangeable for the whole nation of Israel. And uh, that's what he's doing here. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me, and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented, and after I was instructed I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Now, I want you to notice with these two short verses, this is like Israel, or Ephraim, he calls him here, speaking to God. And, and what's happening is Israel, it, it, Jeremiah is kind of like foretelling what Israel's going to really do one day. He says one day they're going to wake up, and one day they're going to come to their senses, and they're going to realize what God has done and how He is their Savior and He is their God. And, and so here's the process that they needed to take. Here's the process you and I need to take every day when we are in a dark place. Look at this in verse 18. He starts off with conviction. With conviction. I have surely heard, he says, that you have said, you have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Y'all ever been around an animal that is wild? I'm talking about buck, wild, like you're scared to get in there with it. Y'all been around cows or bull? Better get a bull. That's what he says, an untrained bull. If you get in a, in, in, in a field with a bad bull, you won't be there long. All right? Especially if you get in a pen with a bad bull. You won't be there long. You, you'll get out. You'll look for a way to get out. He, he'll, he'll run you out. And so he's using this to show that sometimes in the darkest moments when we are being hard-headed like a bad bull, God has to chastise us. He's got to hit us with the hot shot. Y'all know what a hot shot is? 
it will get their attention. If you hit a bull or a cow with a hot shot, it will get their attention. Now, they may not like you after you hit them with it, but by popping them and shocking them with that thing, you'll get them. And he said, he's basically saying, that's what God had to do with me. I had gotten very undisciplined in my life. I had become out of sorts with God, and I'd walked away from the Lord like an untrained bull, and He had to chastise me. He had to rein me in. He had to hem me back in. God had to get a hold of me. He's talking about being convicted of sin, and that's the idea. Listen, when I know that I'm in a dark place, it's not always my fault. Sometimes there are other people who are sinful, who are working against me. Sometimes there's an enemy known as the devil who's working against me. He's doing manipulating circumstances and people around me. But listen, sometimes I create my own chaos. You ever been there? Sometimes it's decisions I've made or things that I've done that were away from God, out of His control, out from under His disciplining hand. And I've tried to do it my way, and I've found myself in a bad place. And that's where Israel was. You know why God allowed the Babylonians to conquer them? Because they were worshiping idols. Because they were being hard-hearted and disobedient to the Lord. They would not listen like an untrained bull. He describes himself that way. Just wild, out of control. And sometimes if we get that way, God has to reign us in. And so look what happens. When God uses circumstances to bring chastisement, dark moments, look what he says in the second part of verse 18. He cries out and says, Restore me, and I will return. Restore me, and I will what? Return. I'll turn around. I'll come back. God, if you'll promise me a hope and a future. God, if you'll show me how to get out of this. Lord, if you'll give me an opportunity to be made over again, to be restored. Lord, I will return to you. He's talking about repentance. Conviction needs to lead us to repentance. If you're in a bad place in life and God convicts you of a sin in your heart and in your life, you need to repent. What does that mean? It means you need to return to God. You need to turn around from the direction you're headed and turn back to Him. I think in the New Testament, a good example of a guy who did not do this was Judas. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 disciples who knew better. He knew Jesus. He walked with him for three years. He knew everything he needed to know about Jesus being the Savior, but he got hard-headed and hard-hearted and desired money and greed and covetousness more. He desired the things of the world more than a relationship with his Creator who he was personally coming into contact with every day, and he continued to walk away from him, and in the end he would not repent. He would not return to the Lord. He would not turn around, and it cost him his life and eternity. And so that's what the Lord's telling Israel. Turn around. Come back. It's so dark because of the chaos you created. But there's a light in the future. There's a light if you look to me. That's what he's telling them. Look at now in verse 19, or into verse 18. There's a third, a fourth part, a third part of this. He says, For you are the Lord my God. You are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. What does that mean? Well, he's saying this. He came to his senses. He repented. He returned to the Lord. He said, Lord, you are the Lord, my God. Now, look at that. You, the only God, are the Lord. What does Lord mean here? It's the word Jehovah. That's his personal name. You're personally 
my God. You are my God. You're the Lord. What does that mean? You're the boss. You are going to be in charge because you're in charge. You know, here's what's great. God, just because, I, just because I get sideways with God, doesn't mean He's ever sideways with the world. He's always on His throne. He's always in charge, whether I realize it or recognize it or not. And so what, what the prophet Jeremiah senses and what he sees and what he's trying to demonstrate here is that conviction should bring repentance and repentance should bring humility. It should bring humility. There needs to be a sense of humility in our heart after, after we return to the Lord. After God restores us, we need to have an humble spirit and say, God, you're the Lord. I'm not in charge. You are. You're the boss. You're going to call the shots. I'm going to let you lead. I, I, I want to have a good life and a future. I want to have what you want me to have. So, Lord, instruct me. Look what he says. Instruct me, Lord. He mentions this in verse 19. After I was instructed, after God began to teach me, he says, I struck myself on the thigh. What's he saying? He, he, he said, man, uh, why did I do that? Uh, why did I act like that? Y'all ever slapped yourself in the thigh and just got disgusted with yourself? That's what he's talking about. I struck myself in the thigh. He says, I just got disgusted. Because I look back and realize how, how dumb I'd been. Why did I act like that? Why did I do those things? That was foolish. Why would I act like that? Why would I disobey God when I know He's God? And so that's where He's... Re, he re, this, this is a process we need to go through sometimes. We need to experience the conviction for our sin. Then we need to repent. And we need to let it humble us in that moment. And we need to come to the Lord for instruction. And say, Lord, show me what to do. I'm ready. Show me what, what, what do you want me to do. How do you want me to live? And so there's one last thing. And that's where he had to grow. He had to mature. So look at what he, how he finishes verse 19. Because I bore the reproach of my youth. Uh, Y'all ever come to those moments in life where after you figured out what you did wrong, where you finally just said, you know what? And this is an old expression. Y'all have heard this before. I've made my bed, so now I'm going to have to lay in it. Yeah. And that's what he's saying. I bore the reproach of my youth. I I, I I made my bed, so now I'm going to have to lay in it. I'm going to have to be responsible for my actions. Boy, if we could get a whole culture today to take that in. The world we live in today, we've got a whole culture of people who do not want to take responsibility for their actions. They they don't want to do it. It's not my fault. I didn't do that. It's the government's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's not my fault. Woo, mercy, folks. If we don't take hold and take responsibility for our actions, we will pay for them. And it's going to be the wrong way, the hard way. So he's mentioning this now in verse 19. So then when he gets to verse 20, there's one last thing, and here's the best part to me. He's shown us the process, see, for daily reflecting on our situation. When we're in the dark, we need to reflect, did I create my own chaos? Again, sometimes things happen, y'all, that are out of my control. I'm not saying every time you find yourself in the dark, it's your fault. Sometimes when we're in a bad place, it's because Satan's at work against us. Other people are working against us. But a lot of times, we got to remember, we can create our own chaos with our sins. So he says, when that happens, when that happens, what do you do? So here's the last part. In verses 20 through 22, the Lord finishes this way. He gives them a promise, and it's the promise of faithful hope that God doesn't give up 
on people he loves. God doesn't give up on people. He, he doesn't. God will be faithful to continually extend hope into your heart and into your life. If you'll turn to the Lord and you'll be faithful to follow Him, He will continue to guide you. So in these few, last few verses, let's just read them. He says, Is Ephraim my dear son? Again, that's another name for Israel. Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts. Make landmarks. Set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel. Turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, O backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. Now those are some interesting last words we'll get to in a minute. Go back verses 20 and 21 and 22. There's three over, overarching themes in these three verses. In verse 20, he says God loves his people. God loves his people. He doesn't give up on them. He loves them, and love is a decision. It is not an emotion. There are emotions tied to love, but love is a decision that comes from the origin of love, and that's God himself. God is love, and he has decided to love us, even those who've gone astray. Like sheep who've wandered off, he still loves us. He is decided and determined to love his people, even when we wander. And so he, he, he's reflecting on that. In verse 21, he says, set up signposts, make landmarks. In other words, he's saying this, God wants to get you on the road to recovery. He's putting up signs to guide you along the way for, because God leads his people. Not only does he love his people, but he leads his people. God leads his people. Where he leads us, we need to follow. We need to listen. When God speaks to us through His Spirit, we need to be obedient. When God speaks to us through His Word, we need to be obedient. When God speaks to us through a good Christian brother or sister, we need to be obedient to the Word of the Lord. So over and over, we're reminded God leads His people. Then in verse 22, He finishes this way, God also longs for His people. He longs for us. He wants a, desi a desire, desires a relationship. He doesn't want us to backslide away from Him. He doesn't want us to wander off. He, he asks that question in verse 22. How long will you gad about? You know, gad about is an old way of saying, how long will you prance about and wander off and play? Play games. Quit playing games and come back to the Lord and be with Him and be right with Him. And then finally, look at this little phrase he finishes with in verse 22. And this is the most interesting little phrase. You'd lose it if you weren't paying attention. You'd say, oh, what does that mean? But do you know that right here he's talking about Jesus? Now look here. Here's the prophecy. He's taken all this time to build up this picture of darkness and that there's a light coming, there's a light coming, there's a light coming, and now he shows us the light. Now look at this little phrase. A woman shall encompass a man. Now, you know, if we just look at this in, in, in modern English, we go, what does that mean? That doesn't even make sense. But I want to give you the Hebrew, two Hebrew words here that are really important. We don't want to miss them. The word for woman normally in Genesis and all through the Bible, when we read about Eve being created, she's called Isha. That's the Hebrew word, Isha. That's not the word that's used here. There's a, a more difficult word that if I tried to pronounce in Hebrew, I'd probably spit from here to Brother Donnie. I mean, it's a difficult word to say in Hebrew, so I'm not going to try to say it, but it is not the, yeah, you're thanking me now. It's the, it is not the word that you would typically think about for a woman, but the word here means a young female, like a, a young girl. Really, uh, it's the idea of a young maiden, a young maiden, 
A young maiden, he says, shall encompass. Encompass means to surround or to take in, right? Look at this. A man, but the word man here is not ish, which is the, or adam, which is the word for man. Normally in Hebrew, that's not the word. It's the word geber. And geber means literally a mighty one, a warrior, the champion. Listen to that. A young maiden shall take in or encompass the mighty one. Who is he talking about? For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. A virgin shall conceive. The young woman shall encompass a mighty one. See, this is, this is where Jeremiah is telling them, God's going to do something new that you've never seen before. I'm telling you, when you're in a dark place in your life, if you will hope in the Lord, He will do something new that you've never seen before. But you've got to trust Him. He proved it by sending His Son, Jesus. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we're so thankful today that the hope that we have is Christ, that He is the light that has shined into the darkness, and that we can trust in Jesus to save us. So, Lord, today, if there's someone who's never trusted with all their heart in Christ, today would they give themselves to you through your Son? Listen, if you're here today and you know in your heart, I don't have a relationship with the Lord, but Brother Matt, I want one. I want to know God. I want to have hope. I'm tired of living in the darkness. I'm tired of living away from God. I want to know Him. Listen, if that's where you are, would you pray this prayer today with me? Would you say a prayer of faith just like this? Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner. And God, I want you to save me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Jesus, thank you for going into the tomb with my sin. Jesus, thank you that you rose from the dead over my sin. Well, if you'd pray that simple prayer of faith, And you would ask Him now to come into your heart. You'd say, Jesus, would you come into my life and into my heart? Would you forgive me of my sins? Look, He'll do that very thing right now. He'll he'll come into you and He'll live in your heart. His Holy Spirit will live with you and He'll help you to know how to have hope in the future and how to make the best decisions for the life He has for you. Father, today we're so thankful for that promise. Thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. And so we pray that today if there's someone who maybe just prayed that prayer of faith and they really are ready to follow Jesus. God, would you give them strength today, courage to tell someone, not to hide that or hold that in, but just to let somebody know, I've trusted Jesus. I'm going to follow God now. And uh, Lord, if there's someone who's done that, would you help them today even to make that something real in their life? In just a few minutes, I want to invite you to do this. We'll all stand. We'll all sing together. And as we stand and sing, if you prayed that prayer and you asked Jesus to come into your life and you're ready, I want you to come and just take me by the hand. Brother Jay will be here as well. We want to talk to you about what it means now to start following Jesus and how to live for Him. All right, we want to help you in that. So Lord, today, if someone needs to make that decision, help them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.